0: We're in the last message in our series on spiritual warfare. I want you to turn to uh, Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. But as you're doing that, I want you to think with me. Think back when Satan comes to you with his lies and his deceptions. What's your response? How do you deal with the lies of the evil one? I think there's a number of different responses. For some, they're not even aware that they're dealing with Satan or his demons. They're not aware that the lies are coming from the evil one. Others ignore it, hope the thoughts go away. Others flee from it by occupying their minds and their lives with other things. Some of us argue with Satan, we debate with him, tell him the lies are not truth. And maybe the worst case scenario is we believe the lies and allow them to shape our lives. And so we go on living a lie that is put in our head by the evil one. In this section, in Ephesians 6, on spiritual warfare, three times the Apostle Paul uses the word stand in verse 11, he says, "Put on the full armor of God so you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil." In verse 13, "Therefore take up the full armor of God so you'll be able to resist on the evil day and having done everything stand firm." And then verse 14, "Stand firm therefore having belted your waist with truth. That term is a soldier's expression, and it means to stand your ground as opposed to fleeing. The picture is a Roman soldier, the best trained soldier in the world at the time, He was a soldier that was trained in hand-to-hand combat. This morning, I want to look at our offensive weapon that God has given us to fight Satan and his demons hand-to-hand. This weapon is divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, strongholds, that we've given over to Satan. It destroys arguments and all lofty things raised up against the knowledge of God. And it takes every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's the weapons that God has given us to fight against the evil one. Look down at verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let me pray. Father, we're going to look at the sword of the Spirit this morning. Father, we know that your Word does not return void without accomplishing what you desire and succeeding in the matter for which you sent it out. Lord, would you do things that are eternal today because of this word? Father, would you transform us and renew our minds? We pray it in Jesus' name. This is the only offensive weapon in all of the armor. And it's the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It's given to us to go hand to hand against Satan. I want to note a couple of things. This sword is actually a dagger. It's a large knife. It's not a large sword. It's used for hand-to-hand combat. It's the same word that's used in Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Secondly, the word used here for word of God is rhema. It means the utterance of God. It's different than logos, which means the whole of Scripture. It's an utterance of God that's given to us for a specific use. The other thing I want you to notice is that the sword of the Spirit and the Word of God are used synonymously. Paul says it's the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God. They're linked together. The Spirit is called the Spirit of truth. The Spirit is the one that reveals truth to us He's also the one that brings specific truth to us when we need it. And so I want to do two things this morning. I want to look at the temptations of Jesus and how he used the rhema to fight against Satan. And then I want to look at some common lies, deceptions that the evil one brings against us and how there are specific rhema to deal with it. So turn to Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. The temptation of Jesus actually starts in chapter 4 but I want you to look at what precedes that so we have context. In verse 16, it says this. After he was baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and settling on him. And behold, a voice from the heavens said, this is my beloved Son, In with whom I am well pleased. And then the very next verse says this. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness for the very purpose of being tempted by the evil one. This just didn't happen. This was led by the Spirit. And then it says, after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. That's an understatement. I can barely make it from lunch to dinner without being hungry, right? i got to have a snack. 40 days, 40 nights without food. And Jesus is in the wilderness where there is no food. He's alone. He's hungry. Physically, he's spent. Luke tells us that during those 40 days, Jesus was tempted by the devil over and over and over again. And so Jesus is very vulnerable in his physical body. And Satan's goal is to have Jesus sin against the Father so he would not be able to be the holy, sinless sacrifice for our sin. So we've got three temptations that are described. And I want to look at those this morning. I want you to listen. What is the actual temptation that Satan brings And how does Jesus respond? First temptation. If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. If you are the Son of God. Jesus was just declared to be the Son of God by the Father at his baptism. Jesus knew it. Satan knew it. So why would Satan come and question Jesus' deity? Remember, Jesus in a physical weakened condition. Is he trying to confuse Jesus? He's questioning his identity as the son. He wants to raise doubts in Jesus' mind about who he is. And think about it, doesn't satan often come to us and to try and confuse us doubt our identity as children of god satan wants him to show his deity by turning stones into bread he's really questioning God's goodness, right? You're the son of God, or are you? Wouldn't your father be taking care of your hunger, your physical needs, if you are the son of God? Very similar to the deception he used on Eve in the garden. He used food and questioned God's goodness and his care for her. So the sin for Jesus would have been to act on his own, to use his deity and not trust the Father for what he needs. Again, Satan did it in the garden. He uses it on us. God's not supplying what you need. He's withholding from you. God's not fulfilling your desires. He's not fulfilling His promises. I want to note a couple things here. Some things Jesus did not do. First of all, He didn't debate with Satan. Didn't argue with him. He didn't argue about his own deity. He didn't argue about the relationship that he had with the Father. The other thing he didn't do, he didn't call any angels. He didn't use his own deity. He simply says this, it is written. If Jesus would have used those other things, angels, his deity, those things aren't available to us. But Jesus uses something that's available to every one of us, the word of God. It is written. And he uses the Rima, an utterance of God that was very specific to the temptation. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, It's a reference to when Israel was in the wilderness. And God was testing them to see if they would trust God. One commentator even wondered if Jesus was in that same wilderness. So what an appropriate verse to use. Man shall not live on bread alone but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. It's God that provides our every need. No matter how severe the test, in Jesus' case, how severe the hunger, that word that Matthew used for hunger means starvation, famine, It was severe. When it looks like there's no hope, there's a wilderness surrounding you. There's no food in this wilderness. But Jesus says, Man shall live on every word that comes out of the word of God. Second temptation, verse 5. Then the devil took him along into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. Now Satan's going to quote the scripture back at Jesus. Since Jesus used it on him, he will give his angels orders concerning you and On their hands they will lift you up so that you do not strike your foot against a stone. Takes them to the temple, the center of Jewish life, up on the pinnacle of the temple so you can see down everywhere. There's probably thousands of people there because this is where life centered for the Jew. And he says, You know what? What a perfect setting, Jesus, to prove yourself. Remember, he started, If you are the Son of God? Hey, prove it. All these people are here. What a great display to show them that you are the Son of God. Throw yourself down. The people will be talking about this for years to come. And then Satan quotes Psalm 91. I want to read a couple of verses out of this. I want you to listen to the tone of this psalm. What's the purpose that the psalmist wrote this? One who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will lodge, will dwell in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for it is he who rescues you from the net of the trapper, from the deadly plague. He will cover you with his pinions, with his feathers, and under his wings you may take refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and wall. And then we come down to verse 9. For you have made the Lord my refuge, the Most High, your dwelling place. Understand the intimacy here. Intimacy with God and protection from God. No evil will happen to you, nor will any plague come near your tent. And then here's the verse that Satan quotes. He actually misquotes it. He forgets a crucial part. For he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you in all your ways. That's what Satan forgot to add here. On their hands they will lift you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So he forgot the part that talks about God protecting us in all of our ways. This is a psalm about God's protection and our trust. But not only does he misquote, he misapplies it. He wants Jesus to prove that he's the Son. to impose upon the Father's protection. Pete, will you put up the first verse? My brother Craig, when he first became a believer, was all in. And he got involved in a cult called the Children of God. And here's one of the verses they used to have them leave our family and move into their commune. This verse, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Craig was a young believer, didn't have a good handle on all the scripture. Satan used this verse out of context to move him into a cult. And that's what Satan does. Misquotes and misapplies Scripture. He did it in the garden. He misquoted God's instruction to Adam and Eve. He casts doubt into Eve's mind about the goodness of God. And so he tries to do it to Jesus. He tries to manipulate Jesus by presuming on God's protection and putting God to the test. Again, Jesus doesn't debate this. Right, He doesn't debate, hey, Satan, you misquoted this. You misapplied it. No, Eve tried that in the garden. She tried to debate Satan and land up confused and sinning against God. On the other hand, Jesus says, it is written, again, the rhema, you shall not put the Lord God to the test. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.16, which refers back to Exodus 17.7. Again, when Israel is in the wilderness and they're demanding that God give them water. Instead of trusting God for water, they demanded that God prove Himself. That's the temptation. Do you trust God? or do you demand God to keep his word? The question for us, how well do we know the scripture? Do we know it well enough that when the enemy misquotes it, or misapplies it, that we are aware of it? Third temptation. Verse eight. Again, The devil took him along to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. We sang it today the creator of all, the sovereign of all. And here's Satan offering him those kingdoms. We know that Jesus is going to rule a thousand years here on earth and then in eternity. But the road to Jesus' rule goes through the cross. Suffer, suffering, humiliation, pain, and here's Satan offering Jesus a shortcut. Bypass all that. Put up the second slide. This is Luke's account of the same temptation. Luke adds something. The devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. We know that Satan's the prince of the air, the prince of this age. But Satan declares that he's the rightful ruler of this domain when he's an illegitimate ruler. God did not give him that authority. He usurped it. And then he says, I give it to anyone I wish. Both statements are lies. They're deceptions. But isn't that what Satan offers people today? Glory and power, dominion, money, pleasures. The same lies that he used on Jesus, he uses on us. The cost of these kingdoms for Jesus was to fall down and worship Satan, turning Jesus from the Father and prostrating himself before Satan. The result would have been that Jesus would have become a slave of Satan. The same is true of us. When we present ourselves to sin, we become slaves of sin. Romans chapter 6. Jesus responds again, it is written, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and you will not put him to the test. It is written. Deuteronomy 6.13 is what Jesus quotes. And it's a command to the Israelites as they come into the promised land. And so Jesus uses the word of God to fight off. Then he tells the devil to be gone and then the angels came and ministered to him. God provided for him. Jesus knew that the father would provide for him. So what do we learn? Jesus did not call upon any supernatural powers as he's battled with Satan. The enemy knows the scriptures and twists them to fulfill his purposes. Jesus did not argue or debate sa- Satan. And finally, Jesus' only weapon was the word of God. So, what about you and I? I took a small poll, some of our people, to see what the most common deceptions and lies Satan used on them. I found that Satan uses the same deceptions against both genders, against different races, against leaders, pastors. His lies are very similar for all of us. He puts them in a different contexts for us. He applies them differently. He's been using these lies for thousands of years. And they've worked very well for him. So, the most common deception of the people I polled I am inadequate. Comes in different forms. I'm inadequate spiritually. Maybe ministry-wise, inadequate as a mother, as a father, as a provider. It may sound like this. You're not good enough. Don't even try a new ministry, a new job. You'll only fail, and then everyone will know it. Or maybe it sounds like this. God can't use me. I'm no value to God. Maybe the lie comes from comparing ourselves to others, looking at others' ministries, looking at others' possessions, looking at their gifts, their parenting skills. But the bottom line is, I am of no use. Why bother trying? Can any of you identify with that deception? I know I can't. So the question is, what is the rhema? What is the utterance of God that God has declared that is the antidote to Satan's lie? These aren't all of them. There are a couple of them that came to my mind. Pete, this is Paul. The context is his ministry, but I think it's true of all of life. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything that's coming from ourselves. Satan comes and says you're not adequate. You know what? You're right, Satan. I am not. But there's a second part to this. Our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant Our adequacy is from God. He made us adequate. Paul said in in 2 Corinthians 10, he had a thorn in the flesh. He said, I prayed three times for God to remove it. And God responded that I am adequate. I perfect my strength in weakness. And Paul says, I'll boast about my weakness, about my inadequacy, so that the power of Christ might dwell in me. Satan's lie is a half-truth. We are inadequate, but because we're in Christ, we are adequate. We are everything that we need to be. Another verse comes to my mind, Pete. First Peter. This is who God has declared you and me to be. You are a chosen race. Talk about being special. A royal priesthood. A go-between between God and men. A holy nation. A people for God's own possession. The reason you can proclaim the excellencies of God who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God's made us adequate. He's declared us chosen, holy nation. He goes on to say you were not, once not a people, but now you're the people of God. That makes you adequate. Adequate. Not because of you, but because of him. And you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. One other verse, if the lie has come to you. Ephesians chapter 1. Just as he chose us, God chose you and me to be in Christ. And he did it before the foundation of the world. Before you did anything good, anything bad, and he made us holy and blameless before him. Holy and blameless. That's the declaration of God concerning us. And then he adopted us through Jesus Christ to himself according to his kind intention of his will. Second lie, he uses our sin to produce shame and guilt in our lives. They could be past sins. they could be present sins. Satan doesn't care if he can get you to be shameful and guilt-ridden. It, it tells us we can't be used by God, right? Our shame says, God can't use me. Look at the things I've done. It hurts our relationships with one another. If I told them the stuff that's in my life, they'd run. They'd run away. They wouldn't have anything to do with me. It keeps us from a deeper walk with our Father. Shame. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned? What did they do? They hid They hid from God. They hid from each other, right? They covered themselves from each other and they hid from God. So what's the utterance of God that's appropriate? Pete, Romans 8, one. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why is there no condemnation? Because we're in Christ Jesus. We're clothed with his righteousness. Those sins that Satan brings to our mind, are they true? Yes. But God has declared us righteous, that there is no condemnation. Another verse, again in Romans 8: Who will bring a charge? against God's elect? Probably Satan. God is the one who justifies. Right? He's the one that declared us righteous. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Jesus Christ is our mediator, our intercessor, There's no condemnation. We have been declared righteous. Third and last lie God is not good. That's what he said to Eve. That's what he said to Jesus. He's withholding something from you. Might sound like this God allowed circumstances to come into our lives. Sickness, disability, financial ruin, relationship that were destroyed. Or maybe we look at the others. Again, what they possess, we compare ourselves to them. Compare ourselves to the ministry of others. And we declare God's not good. God did for that person something that he didn't do for me, so he's, he's withholding from me. It's one of Satan's oldest and best lies. It causes us to look at ourselves as victims and blame it on God. So what's the answer to this lie? You might see a theme here. This is also Romans 8. (laughs) What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We can tell that to Satan, right? God's for us. You may be against me, but God's for me. And then he says this. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him, with Jesus, freely give us all things? We do not declare God's goodness based on our circumstance. It's the cross. The cross is the declaration of God's goodness. That's where we can say, Satan, God may have withheld this for some reason that I don't understand, but he's still good, and the cross proves it. Pete, I'm gonna skip the last uh, one here last slide. We're running out of time. So what's the application? Know this book. Know the word of God. We need to know it well enough to do hand-to-hand combat with the evil one. Satan's going to come to us, misquote it, Misapply it. And we need to know it well enough that it's been misquoted or misapplied. If we only come to it here and there, sometimes, maybe when we're in trouble, we're not going to be equipped for the battle. And Satan's gonna have his way as he did with Eve. Colossians 3.16 says this, let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. Let it make its home in you. It's not just about reading it. It's about studying it. It's about memorizing. It's about meditating on it. We need to have this word dwelling in us. It's our offensive weapon as we fight against the evil one. Let me pray. Father, would you make us that type of people? Father, that are so familiar with this word that we can quote it appropriately against the evil one. And Father, just as with Jesus, eventually the evil one leaves because he cannot stand against the truth. Thank you that you have given us this weapon May we use it wisely. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.